David, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it's good to be reminded that this God we follow is a big God, and this movement we're a part of, of Jesus' grace, is a global movement. And I'm so grateful to have you here to remind us that, to celebrate, to sing with you, that God is good. And this, this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 4. Um, and we're continuing this short little two-part series on experiencing and extending the grace of Jesus. And last week, we, we looked at uh, a, an encounter with Jesus between him and a disciple, a disciple of Jesus who had failed and was restored by his grace. And this week, we're going to be looking at a woman who has yet to become a disciple of Jesus, but has been broken by sin, her sin and the sin of others. And she's going to be renewed by the grace of Christ. And one thing that we see is that a big part, as we, as we learn about this topic, a big part of experiencing and extending this grace is communicating it, is talking about it, singing about it, having gospel conversation too. And this is to help others understand and rejoice and experience it and understand it like we have. And so when I thought about talking about this, the first thing that came to my mind was another text, Matthew 23, where Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees. This is his like seven famous woes. You may have heard of them. The woes, he says to the scribes and Pharisees. I think the first two are appropriate for this conversation to kind of set the stage for our motivations. And, and things like that. So Jesus says this to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And that word just means convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And at first, if you're listening, these two woes almost seem opposite or mutually exclusive. I mean, which is it, Jesus? Uh, do they keep people from being converted by, shut, by not letting them into the kingdom and shutting it in their faces, like he says in the first one? Or do they go to great lengths to convert people by crossing land and sea, as he says in that second woe? Well, they did both. The first woe, Jesus is describing how they would not invest the time or energy or resources into those that they did not deem worthy to be a part of their religious club. They, they would shut the kingdom of God in people's faces, he says. Even seekers and those who had come to the end of themselves. And Jesus explains that the reason they, they did this, the reason they wouldn't let people in is because they weren't entering in themselves. But the second woe, Jesus says that for those who fit the bill, these Pharisees would cross land and sea to convert them. But the message they converted them with and to made them into religious, moralistic hypocrites like themselves because it was a message of more religious, moralistic hypocrisy. And it was not the gospel, the good news of the grace of God. 
And so we should take these very strong words of Jesus into careful consideration as we approach this topic because the Pharisees' hearts were wrong. Their motivation was wrong. And their message was wrong. The Pharisees were motivated by two things, results and duty. They would cross land and sea to make a convert, the right kind of convert, so that people would view them well or so that their following might grow. In our context, maybe that our church might grow, grow with the right kind of people. Motivated by results. Or they would be motivated by duty. God said do this, so we just have to do it grudgingly. And that is not what Jesus wants for us. Because those are the only two things that will motivate you until you're really gripped by the gospel of grace and drink deeply from the living water that becomes in you a spring welling up to eternal life. And we're going to learn from Jesus in this text about engaging people with grace and and having gospel conversations. But it will all be for nothing if we don't start by realizing that we're not to primarily view ourselves as Jesus in this text. We are the woman. We are the needy and the broken to whom Jesus comes offering grace and life. And like her then, we run and say to our people, come see the man who truly saw me and deeply loved me and powerfully saved me. I quoted uh, King David's psalm last week in my sermon, Psalm 51, where he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And then he says, And and then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. You see, he's, he's, he's writing about this picture that it's from a heart that's overflowing in joy. That in the joy of our salvation, that gospel conversations will happen and will powerfully be used by God. And, and we will extend grace to others when we're really gripped by the good news and in love with Jesus. Then, unlike the Pharisees, we will hold the door to the kingdom open wide for anyone to enter in. And we won't just seek to convert people to a religion, but we will long to see people's thirsts quenched. And we will long to see people satisfied and and the the broken cisterns of their soul replaced with springs of living water. And we're going to see from Jesus himself how he perfectly embodies this message and does the exact opposite of what the Pharisees did as he engages this, this woman with his good news. Jesus is going to have a gospel conversation with this woman. And this morning, I want us to see what he chooses to talk about and how he does it. And I want to, in fact, I want us to see that the content of his message actually informs what he does with it because he fully embodies his message. He lives in perfect harmony with what he preaches. And so let's learn from our Lord in chapter 4 of John. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea, departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. 
It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we are grateful for your grace through your Son. Give us ears to hear you speak and hearts to believe and embrace and resolve for your glory. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So Jesus engages this woman by asking for a drink. And then the next thing he says is, if you knew the gift of God. He talks about a gift. What Jesus has to offer is a gift, a free gift. And the concept of gift is another way of talking about grace. Like in Ephesians 2.8 where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And if you read Ephesians 2, you see that this grace was motivated by love. But grace is not just an act of love. It's an act of love to someone who deserves the opposite. And this is stunning. But it's also humbling because inherent in the the giving of grace is the message that we can't do it ourselves, that we need it. This humbles you. It means that there's no room for pride. Christ's salvation is a gift that you receive, not a wage that you earn. Because what disqualifies you from receiving a wage? Not doing the work, right? Right? But what disqualifies you from receiving a gift? Only pride. Only saying, I don't want or need your charity. Since it's a gift, you have to have that humility to receive it. When I was a brand new believer, uh, about 16, uh, new to the church, and this church in fact, which is pretty neat, The young man who had shared the gospel with me and was discipling me, many of you know him, Casey Lawson. He uh, took some of us to a barbecue joint for his birthday. And we were were all, uh, after the dinner, we were all buying t-shirts from there. For some reason, they sold t-shirts. Big Mama's Barbecue. And uh, you may have been there. And they were, everybody was buying t-shirts to commemorate the event, and I couldn't afford one. 
And so uh, Casey said he would buy it for me. And I, uh, I, I, I didn't want to, you know, receive that from him because it was his birthday after all. So I was like, no, no, you know, and he's like, he's like, no, I insist. He insisted. So I said, okay, I'll pay you back. And he looked at me and he said, no, no, Jay, you're a Christian now. All my unbelieving friends, they have to pay each other back. They can't receive gifts. But we Christians should be the best at receiving gifts. Because our whole life is a gift. Our whole salvation is a gift from Jesus. I tell that story here for two reasons. First, because it's an excellent example of someone who was fluent in the gospel and could speak it into the everyday stuff of life which is exactly what we're talking about with gospel conversations. But also because it really illustrates the truth about our salvation. It's a gift, and we just have to be humble enough to receive it. And once it comes into you, it creates humility, which makes us not hypocritically proselytize like the Pharisees did, but humbly and graciously, through love, to speak the good news into people's lives. How does the fact that salvation is a gift affect how Jesus delivers it? Well, in this story, look at who he's talking to. He's talking to a Samaritan. Racially inferior, according to the Jews, because they had mixed with pagans. But not only were they, were they racially inferior, they were considered dangerous heretics because they had the wrong doctrine and teaching. And not only is she a Samaritan, she's a woman, which a fact that in that culture would have lowered her status significantly and made this interaction very inappropriate with Jesus. But on top of being a Samaritan and on top of being a woman, we learn that she's most likely a social and moral outcast, if you keep reading on in the story, due to her large number of divorces and her current unwed cohabitation with a man. So she is as, about as low on the totem pole in that culture as you can get. And in that culture, the lower you were socially, the further you were from God. And the higher up and more respectable religiously, the closer you were to God and more blessed by Him because of your hard work. And that's why she is shocked whenever Jesus talks to her. He, he says, how can you, she says, how can you be talking to me? The people at the bottom didn't expect the people at the top to talk to them. Or if they did, it would be in a condescending way. But Jesus isn't condescending. He engages her lovingly and respectfully because the salvation Jesus offers is free grace. And because it's free grace, he breaks through all of those barriers that should have separated them. The religious barrier, the racial barrier, the gender barrier, the moral and social barriers. She wasn't the right kind of person. And she didn't do the right kinds of things. But Jesus loved her. He saw her as a dearly loved human being made, created in the image of his father who had been broken by her own sin and the sin of others. And you know, for the longest time when I read this, this uh, story, I saw her just as like a, a stereotypical sinner. She's, just this, she's like a sinner, but, which is true, but I didn't have Christ's compassionate eyes for her. I didn't think about how much emotional pain she was probably in. 
Even if she had brought this on herself, nobody goes through five divorces without significant pain. Especially in that culture where it was the men who had the right to divorce their wives, not not the women. We must learn, like Jesus, to see people's humanity, not just their reputation or our own biases. We are called to love those even whom we view as the wrong kinds of people. You love and serve and care about whoever your wrong kind of people are. Treat them with kindness, patience, and welcome. Intentionally love those who are of a different race and culture than you, even if they're, not, they're proud of their racial and cultural differences and don't downplay them. What about those who are of a different political party, even if they post far too many Facebook posts about their political opinions? What about those who have different doctrine than you? Those within the LGBTQ range of sexuality and gender identification. Those who are socially awkward. Those who are morally compromised by their, and broken by their own sin. Those who are criminals. Those who are poor. Those who are rich. There's a million different ways in which people don't fit into the categories that we find personally appealing, right? And there's many people, even in this room, people like me, who have people in their family that fit into some of these categories that I just named, and we see them as much more than the categories people put them in. And we long for for the people of God to see them that way. And to, to love them like family. To love them with the love of Christ and to speak the love of Christ to them. This is what the grace of God compels you to. But let's also look at how Jesus describes this gift that he's talking about. Because I love it. He uses this metaphor of living water. And I love this, especially in this application, right? Because she's there to get water. Just ordinary water because she needs it. Because she's thirsty. But Jesus knows that she needs something even more than she needs water. And that she, he knows that she thirsts for more than she thirsts for water. She has a spiritual need and a spiritual thirst that only he can meet. Because her body just physically needs water or else it dies. And so God designed her to crave it with thirst. And in the same way, her soul needs what Jesus offers or she's dead. And her soul longs and thirsts for something that she has been trying to find elsewhere in in pleasure, in comfort, in control, in men. But she hasn't been able to satisfy it. Because only Jesus can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. C.S. Lewis once, he had a great quote where he, he explained that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. For instance, a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. There is a thirst under your greatest longings 
many of which are misplaced. And Jesus says, I have what you're looking for. But Jesus takes this this step, this, this analogy, a step further of living water. And he says that not only will this living water satisfy you, it will transform you. He says to her, the water that I can give you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I'll put a living water spring inside of you. I can change you completely. He's saying, I've got what every human soul longs for, and I will not only satisfy you, but I will change your inner being and renew your heart and soul with purpose and with love and with joy and with my very presence. And I love that image of a spring inside of you too because it's not, it takes it from just satisfying your own thirst, but where do people go to satisfy their thirst? To a spring. That's what we're talking about with experiencing and then extending this grace. I once was talking with a friend of mine who, who doesn't believe in God, and he said it's clear that religion and Christianity works for you and, and helps you, but different things work for different people, so there's no need to insist on Jesus. But he clearly didn't understand what I was trying to say because the good news of Jesus Christ is not something that works for me. That implies I'm using it for my own purposes. But the gospel is not something I use for my purposes. It's the means by which Jesus sweeps me up into his purposes. The gospel transforms me, transforms us from the inside. And notice that Jesus says this spring he puts within us wells up to eternal life. The water is living because it connects us with the life of of Christ. And if we have Christ, we have his life now. And his life is eternal. So eternal life is not just living forever. It is that. But it's much more than that. Eternal life is not just a quantity of life, it's a quality of life. The eternal life that Jesus talks about is this personal relationship to God, the Father, and God, the Son. He, he defines it in John, in John 17 when he's praying to God the Father and he says, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is a personal, intimate knowing of God. It's not like some medication, like an inoculation against the disease of death that works unconsciously like a spiritual antibiotic. It's this conscious experience of knowing and relating to God, not just after death, but here and now. In John 10, Jesus says that he came like that sermon series that Pastor Tim was preaching, that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. So in Jesus' way of thinking, it's not just you're alive or you're dead, but there's an abundance of life we can have. And this means that this message is not just about what happens after you die. It's also about your life here and now. Which means that we, like Jesus, are to apply it to our lives and apply it to people's lives where they are hurting and broken where they are sinful or searching, where they are confused or deceived, where they are loving, worshiping, longing. This means that these, 
gospel, when we extend, extend this grace and have gospel conversations, it's deeply personal and relational. We don't just have one template or set of talking points. There's no formula that we force every person into without regard to, to their personality or their relationship to us or their background or experiences. Of course, there is content to the gospel that we must believe, but there's as many ways of talking about this good news as there are people. And we see how Jesus does this. I love it when you read through the gospel of John because the, the gospel writer put John Four, right after John 3, right? And where we see two very different gospel conversations that Jesus has with two very different people. And he, how he handles them differently based on who they were. In, three, in John chapter 3, he talks to Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. We've already heard this morning how he talks to Pharisees, but he was a religious leader. He, so he cuts to the chase with him. And he says, you must be born again. He confronts him with the idea that you've got to start over. Your religious accomplishments don't count. You've got to become like a little child, Nicodemus. Why? Because Jesus had to break through his religious and moral pride as a prideful and respected holy man. But with this Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus is much more indirect and gentle. He brings her along and he uses a different metaphor, doesn't he? A metaphor of living water which is much more appealing because this woman already feels like an outcast and a failure. Jesus speaks the gospel in a way that applies to her where she is thirsty and broken. But since we don't have the supernaturally insightful mind of Jesus, what does this mean for us? For us, this means that we must learn to listen to people, which requires genuine care and curiosity about our fellow human beings. It requires genuine love and patience and wisdom. But even with Jesus' supernatural insight, he was really good at this, at listening and drawing people out, people's hearts out. Because with this woman, he opened himself up to her in humility. He received from her by asking for a drink. He invited conversation but to help her understand her own longings and her own beliefs. And often Jesus does this with questions. You know that in the Gospels, throughout the Gospels, Jesus asks 307 questions. I love that. He's Jesus, but he asks so many questions. Jesus drew out people's hearts and he listened to them. Often we can go on and on about what we believe and what others should believe, making assumptions rather than actually finding out and knowing what they think, feel, believe, or need. When we do this, we're often giving answers to questions people aren't even asking or cramming information into hearts that are longing for love and not just facts. If we fail to really listen, we might miss opportunities to genuinely love people and share the love of God with them. And they also miss out on getting to hear what's in their own hearts. I'm convinced that's why Jesus asked so many questions, right? Because he was Jesus. He, didn't, he wasn't asking these questions for him to learn anything. But when we're invited to say out loud what we believe and feel, then we can start to see that there's something off. Something isn't right. And that's when Jesus leads us to the truth, leads us to himself, like he did with the Samaritan woman. There's a great Christian author and thinker, Francis Schaeffer, that said, if I only have an hour with someone, 
I will spend the first 55 minutes asking them questions and finding out what's troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I'll share something of the truth. We need to grow in humility and spend more time listening than talking if, we want, if we're going to be able to extend the grace of Jesus in a way that meaningfully speaks to the hearts of people and others. We were all created by God to find our greatest satisfaction and fulfillment in Him. Every human being is thirsty for God. We all have eternity written on our hearts, producing a longing for something or someone truly good, truly glorious, truly everlasting. Deep within us, we all ache for healing, for freedom, for redemption, for restoration. And only Jesus can provide that. Only Jesus can satisfy those longings. Everyone is looking for something to fulfill their longings and satisfy their, their thirst, but often they're looking in the wrong places and they're going to the wrong wells to draw water for their souls. They need to look to Jesus. We need to look to Jesus. And the first step in helping others come to see how he can quench their thirst is to take the time to listen and ask the Holy Spirit to help us and them discern the, the, the longings of their heart, the brokenness of their spirit, and the emptiness of the soul. And then we lead them to Jesus to drink from his soul-quenching water. If you're wondering if you can be used by God like this, just look at this story. Look at the Samaritan woman. Read the rest of the chapter and see that she was a catalyst for many in that city coming to Jesus. She simply recognized her own need of him and invited others into what she was discovering. She experienced and extended his glorious grace. As a Christmas present uh, for my nephew, I got him this really great children's book. Many of you have probably heard of it. Uh, it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I encourage even adults to read it. It's awesome. It retells the biblical story of Jesus for kids. And in that's the story where Jesus is calling his disciples, it says this. I love it. Who would make good helpers, do you think? Clever ones? Rich ones? Strong, important ones? Some people might think so, but I'm sure by now you don't need me to tell you they'd be wrong. Because the people God uses don't have to know a lot of things or have a lot of things. They just have to need Him a lot. You just have to need Him a lot. In John 7, three chapters after this interaction at the well, Jesus stands up at the end of a great feast Surrounded by many people, including many enemies who wanted to arrest him and kill him. And he issues this completely open-ended invitation to everyone to come to him to drink. And the only qualification that he mentions is thirst. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He says this to his enemies like the scribes and Pharisees. He says this to people that society says he should have nothing to do with, like this woman 
at this Samaritan woman at the well. And he says this to you. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, I thank you for your life-changing grace. I pray that you would grant us to have compassion, to see people through your eyes. I pray that you would fill us with the joy of your salvation so that the truth of it just spills out of us. And I pray that you would put people, receptive people, whom you're preparing the hearts of into our lives and help, them, help us to seek them out. I pray that you would grant us great faith and trust in you. Faith so sure that it frees us to live lives of risk-taking love for your glory. And we ask all of this in and through the holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.